Continuing Education credits for physicians and other healthcare professionals is provided by VCU Healthcare Continuing Education. Check out cribsiders.vcuhealth.org for more information. The Cribsiders podcast is for entertainment, education, and informational purposes only. The views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of the host. Welcome back to the Cribsiders. What's up? Woo-hoo. Yes. Woo-hoo. Jess, you're not saying anything. Oh, we got to introduce her too. <laughs> We're gonna introduce her. Yeah, she's a lot of talk before that too. But this is oh. uh, this is this is Justin Burke. This is Chris Chu Manchu and our phenomenal producer, Dr. Jess Kelly. Welcome to the show, Jess. Thanks, Justin. Welcome back to the show. Jess was our producer for episode number one, Bronchiolitis with Dr. Brian Alverson. Um, but that's not what we're talking about today, is it, guys? No, it is not. That's right, Chris. It's not. We have an outstanding guest, Dr. Angela Lumba-Brown, who is here to discuss mild traumatic brain injury, or is it concussion, or is concussion a part of mild traumatic brain injury? I didn't know, but now I do. And you will, too, if you listen to the show. But before we get to that content, Chris, tell us what we do. We are the Pediatric Medicine Podcast. We interview leading experts in the fields to bring you clinical pearls, practice changing knowledge, and answer lingering questions about core topics in pediatric medicine. Awesome. So today we have a fantastic conversation with our guest, Dr. Angela Lumba-Brown, who's a pediatric emergency medicine physician and associate professor of emergency medicine, pediatrics, and neurosurgery at Stanford University. She is the co-director of the Stanford Brain Performance Center, and she was the lead author on the 2018 CDC guidelines on the diagnosis and management of mild traumatic brain injury among children. Dr. Lumber Brown teaches us how to diagnose mild TBI and support your patient in their recovery. So without further ado, let's get to it. I don't know, Justin, is it TMI about TBI? You know, I don't know. Diagnosing concussion wasn't as much of a headache as I thought it might be. well we are so grateful that you are taking the time to uh, come on the show with us to learn all about traumatic brain injuries and concussions a topic that is very common in both inpatient and outpatient and the emergency department we are just very excited to have you so so thank you for uh, joining the show thank you for the invitation we like to kind of start with some quick questions just to get to know you a little bit better. And so can you describe yourself for our listeners? Sometimes we ask, it's like in a one-liner that you would hear on rounds, but anything that uh, listeners, maybe non-medicine would be interested in about you and your life? Well, I am a physician scientist inspired by the interaction of the mind and the body, be it in the practice of medicine or when I practice yoga or in the appreciation of the simple things in life. I like that. That's- I, me That's too. Very yeah. <laughs> I'm trying more and more to actively appreciate the little things. Me too. Me too. So my favorite question is, what is your favorite failure and what did you learn from it? Uh-huh. Well, first I have to admit that I don't believe in that term. So I probably won't answer you in the way that you hoped. I have hundreds of failures in all honesty, which, um, in which I wanted to say something maybe, which I tried to achieve something and it didn't work out for whatever reason. And often my efforts ended with someone telling me in a variety of ways that maybe I wasn't smart enough or laughing at me even seriously or suggesting that I just couldn't attain my goal for some reason. So these failures shed light on the potential powers of naysayers, of those who prefer to tell you something is just not possible rather than spending time to explore alternative approaches or modifying goals. So what I learned early on was that I just don't have room for people like that around me. And instead, I surround myself with my cheerleaders and my mentors and with people who want to be real with me, but also want to help me succeed. So what I learned from all of this was that in some situations, I might have taken a different approach or spent a little more time, but ultimately I could achieve what I wanted for myself. And that is really the take-home message about failures that I'd want to share with every future clinician. That's a great answer. Thank you. I love that. Yeah. Very inspiring too. I feel like a lot of guests talk about how failure is just a part of their successful careers. And it's very inspiring for people like Chris and I who are who are great at failing. Yes. <laughs> I'd love to hear what your proudest accomplishment is. Oh, thank you. Well, um, 
actually right now is a is a important time in my life. Uh, my mom has advanced cancer, and giving her the care that she deserves and advocating for her in an imperfect system full of human beings who mean well is really the proudest accomplishment I could ever have. This experience with my mom has shown me why, actually, why I was called to medicine. Oh, she's lucky she has you. Thank you. I'm lucky for her as well. I think this is going to be a, a wonderful discussion. Let's break into some content. Does that sound okay with everyone? So our case, Glasgow is a 14-year-old female who's brought into the clinic after cheerleading practice where she had been thrown from shoulder height and hit her head on the cheerleading mat. She didn't lose consciousness, but she felt nauseous and dizzy afterward. And her mom is worried because now she's vomited a few times. So she brought her to your clinic to be evaluated. So what does this sound like to you? Well, I suspect it's a traumatic brain injury because she did hit her head. And then she had some nausea and vomiting and I think you said dizziness. Moving forward, she may develop a headache, which is one of the most common symptoms of a traumatic brain injury, especially a mild traumatic brain injury. And uh, she also might have some difficulty with concentrating or sleeping this week. Additionally, she might develop some degree of anxiety or mood disruption. And these would all speak to what is most likely um, a mild traumatic brain injury. And when you use the term mild traumatic brain injury, is that, are we using that instead of concussions now? Is concussion the name of like a Nazi scientist and so we're avoiding it? Or what's the, what's the rationale for our very clear use of mild traumatic brain injury? So concussion, minor head injury, and mild traumatic brain injury, I'll say mild TBI, are frequently used interchangeably over the last 20 years, right? But they have different connotations for families, for researchers, for even clinicians, and this can lead to some misinterpretation. Therefore, in the 2018 CDC guideline, of which I was one of the lead authors, uh, we recommended that the clinical use of a single term, mild traumatic brain injury, be used most prevalently in the scientific community. Another important thing to remember though is that traditionally concussion referred to the absence of intracranial injury on neuroimaging. So many evidence-based guidelines do not recommend neuroimaging to diagnose concussion. And then this leads to a, us to a clinical definition in response to balancing overutilization and unnecessary radiation exposure from CT head imaging. So if we're not getting the CT scan on children with concussion, can we really say that they don't have any macroscopic intracranial injury mm. present? No, we can't, but certainly they can. So really mild traumatic brain injury encompasses this. Mild traumatic brain injury may be complicated by intracranial bleeding or swelling, and this is often turned complicated mild traumatic brain injury. Contusion and microhemorrhage may be present, and in the advent of brain MRI for TBI, and its increased use, we're identifying such injuries which weren't traditionally associated with concussion. So I think this is all nuanced. Um, there are some subtle differences between how we traditionally refer to concussion and how we refer to a larger term mild traumatic brain injury. But overall, if we want to communicate as precisely as we can, we should use the term mild traumatic brain injury. So you say that they're, um, you know, they may have a lot of these different symptoms as this evolves. And you talked about um, things that may be absent or may still be there on imaging. Is there a precise definition of TBI or mild TBI? That's a great question. So most organizations define mild TBI as an acute brain injury resulting from mechanical injury to the head or from external forces resulting in confusion or disorientation loss of consciousness for 30 minutes or less, post-traumatic amnesia for less than a day, and or other transient neurologic abnormalities such as focal signs, symptoms, or seizures. So that is a very broad definition, right? I'm working with several groups right now to tighten this definition up, and you're going to see publications coming out in the next year or two to support a uh, more specific diagnosis of mild traumatic brain injury. But important to remember, too, that patients with a concussion, a mild traumatic brain injury, will have a Glasgow Coma Scale score of 13 to 15 upon their presentation for clinical assessment. And so for someone who gets uh, hit in the head and has a headache, is the main differentiator between mild TBI and just getting hit in the head, the fat, that neurological deficit, so either 
the vomiting or the dizziness or the disordered sleeping? That is that kind of the key thing that you see is differentiating a head injury from a mild traumatic brain injury? So a, a simple hit to the head that results in a soft tissue contusion can definitely give you pain in the head, right? That will be localized right. to that area. But it wouldn't give you those focal signs, symptoms, confusion or disorientation, or even those transient changes in, in mental status like loss of consciousness or amnesia. So that's really where the difference is. And the difference is in um, looking for those symptoms and asking about them. Because if we don't ask about all those relatively nonspecific symptoms that relate to concussion, then we, we definitely are going to misdiagnosing patients. And so thank you for that, because I think that really helped kind of clarify. With our patient, um, the mom is really worried. You know, she's vomiting. She's really not acting like herself. And she was told by someone um, on the at the practice that her kid should probably get a picture of her head, a head CT. So how do you kind of deal with this and figure out who should have a CAT scan versus who shouldn't? So luckily, we have several decision rules that support obtaining a head imaging in children. Those would be the PCARN decision rules, the chalice rules, the catch rules. I personally use the PCARN decision tool in my practice. Keeping in mind, though, that this decision tool was published now more than a decade ago, but it helps to advise, and it still helps to advise, CT imaging in children with head injury, not in children with simple mild traumatic brain injury. We do not need imaging to diagnose mild TBI in a child, but we do need an imaging rule to help us determine when more severe injury could be likely depending on associated risk factors. Um, so this could be, honestly, this could be a, a whole discussion in itself, but let me highlight the PCARN decision tool findings. So the original study was published by Nate Cooperman in The Lancet, examining more than 40,000 children with minor head injury. And they ultimately presented a CT imaging algorithm for children younger than two and then two and older. And this algorithm has been um, reproduced in, to some degree in, in many different outlets. You could find it on MD Calc. You could find it maybe even in your electronic health record. I always like to go back to the original algorithm in the Lancet publication or the algorithm that I've modified for um, Stanford Pediatric Emergency Medicine. But in looking at it, we have a group of children who either present with a Glasgow Coma Scale score of 14 or less, or other signs of altered mental status, or a palpable skull fracture. If the child presents with those signs or symptoms, and, and I'm sorry, I'm gonna start by discussing children younger than two. So if they present with those signs or symptoms, neuroimaging is recommended, a CT is recommended. If they don't, um, but this child who's less than two has an occipital or parietal or temporal scalp hematoma or a history of loss of consciousness more than five seconds or a severe mechanism of injury or is not acting normally per their parent, then they fall into the category of a relatively significant risk for a clinically important traumatic brain injury, a 0.9% risk dependent on those individual factors, and observation versus CAT scan on the basis of either the physician experience, multiple findings, worsening signs or symptoms, parental preference would be indicated. If they don't have any of those things, then CT imaging is not recommended. So for our case, um, we're talking about a child who, who is older than two, is that right? So in this case, the risk factors are a little bit different. And this is, this is something that I feel that um, especially my trainees often forget, that there's a different algorithm for children less than two as compared to two and older. So in this case, similarly to who should get neuroimaging right off the bat, if their GCS is 14 or less, they have altered mental status or signs of a basilar skull, skull fracture, yes, they should get imaging. The middle category is where we have a little bit of a difference. So in children two and older, if they have a history of loss of consciousness, a history of vomiting, which wasn't in the previous algorithm, or severe mechanism of injury or severe headache, then it directs us to observe versus obtain CT imaging. And if none of those are there, then a CT would not be recommended. So I believe our patient that we were discussing had a history of vomiting. And mm -hmm. I think you had said her mom was concerned that she was not acting like her usual self. I think that that's right, but we can go both ways. Because if she's not acting her usual self, 
we're concerned about altered mental status, correct? So that would be yes. the higher risk we should image her. Yes. If it were just the vomiting, she would be in that second category of still some risk or maybe the 0.9% risk. And so it would be a little more, I don't want to say equivocal, but observation recommended unless there's other concerns that would make you want to pull the trigger for imaging. Is that is that right? Yes. And I, I want to say something about observation. I actually hadn't planned on saying it, but I'm going to take this moment right, to say it. <laughs> um, I always get asked, how long should we observe this patient for? Four this hours. Maybe. I don't know. Maybe. You're right. That's about you when know, the parents are like, we got to get out of here, man. We're fine now. There was an AAP practice parameter that came out, oh gosh, at least 15 years ago. And, and it was really the the only policy that discussed how long we should observe for. And, and it said we should observe for 24 hours. But that did not mean you had to observe with a clinician. It just meant with a reliable caregiver, which makes a lot of sense and, is, and still you know, holds truth to this day. So how long should a clinician observe a patient in an acute setting? Well, I think it really depends on what the patient looks like. That's what I tell, um, that's what I tell my colleagues and the trainees that I work with. If it is 2 o'clock in the morning, and I have a child coming in who should be asleep at this time, maybe rolled out of bed or something. I need to be able to do my initial exam and then have a second exam that gives me some idea of where, where their trajectory is going. Is it going towards improvement or is it going towards worsening or is it still kind of hanging out the same and I need longer? And especially in the middle of the night, when a child's already sleepy, I will tend to observe longer than I would in the day when that child, when that same child might be running around the emergency room asking for a popsicle, right? So I need that delta, that delta in my exam to say, this child looks like they've improved, not improved, or stayed the same. And that, that delta might, be, might have to be measured over one hour only, or maybe over six hours. It, it really depends. So what, what concerning symptoms would you see during that observation? What, like, from my standpoint, it's, it, it, would be, it might be hard for me to tell, like, if a symptom's really worsening or not, what are the big flags in, when you're observing when you see a patient during this time? I will give you an example of a patient. There was a 16-year-old boy, let's say, who came in and sustained a head injury um, through a projectile to his, to his right temple. When he came in, he had a GCS of 15. He was with his family. Everyone thought he looked great. When I saw him, I noticed maybe a tiny bit of blood at his tympanic membrane. I was concerned for an early hemotympanum. I decided to keep him a little bit longer. And I was glad I did because over that hour of observation, he became incredibly agitated. He was pacing in the room. It's not that he had a specific neurologic decline per se. He didn't have any new neurologic deficits, but he had a change in his presentation. He became very, very agitated even combative. And that resulted in a CT imaging for him, which showed that he had an expanding epidural. Other things you would look for, other than these maybe more subtle changes, would be worsening of symptoms. Uh, maybe the patient came in with a headache and now their headache has become severe or change in mental status. They're becoming more and more drowsy. And we're not talking about the patient at two o'clock in the morning. And then, of course, having the patient on a monitor to make sure that if that, say, five-year-old is taking a nap in mom's arms, you can quickly assess if there's a change in their blood pressure, respirations, or heart rate that would suggest something more ominous, like an increased intracranial pressure. Now, are you doing like vitals, like every every hour that first those couple hours? Are you doing like a full neuro exam? Like what? How? What does that assessment look? Is it just poking your head and it's like, "Hey, how you doing?" Mom's like, "Oh, doing fine," and like you walk back. Like, what? What does that assessment look like? How deep are you going in? You know, I think that would be patient specific. So if you have a child who's, say, you know, coloring happily in their bed, it might just be that you're walking in and saying hello and they're looking up at you and smiling and you see they're moving all of their extremities and moving their head around easily and maintaining eye contact. But in that child who might have presented a little bit more somnolently or, more, or even more scared, who doesn't really want to engage with you, that reassessment would be coming back in and doing a, another near complete exam, another neurologic exam ensuring that the patient is um, engaging with you with eye contact and speaking to you and ensuring that you can see that they're moving all of their extremities without any distress. Can I ask, in going back to the PCARN criteria, you mentioned that one of the 
secondary risk factors was the severity of mechanism of injury. Can you talk a little bit about what defines severity of injury and maybe some of those nuances that we'll get into? Sure. Um, I believe for children less than two, it was a fall of three feet or a fall of three feet or more. And then for older children, two and above, it was a fall of five feet or more. So in in remembering this situation, our patient, um, Glasgow at Cashlack Children's Hospital, she was a cheerleader at cheerleading practice, and she was being thrown from the shoulder of her co-cheerleader. So that already suggests to me if she's standing on the other cheerleader's shoulders, well, you know, her head's actually starting from probably about 10 feet in the air. So she she would technically fall into the severe mechanism of injury category. Now, the only thing reassuring to me about this patient that that we initially talked about was that she hit her head on a cheerleading mat, which hopefully absorbed some of that impact as opposed to a hard floor. I feel like there are times, this is great, thank you. And I feel like there are times in the ED where a one and a half year old fell from the bed and we would ask how far up was the bed? You know, two, three, four feet, I don't know. And it was like the worst answer because then it was like, is, you know, what, what, what level of risk? But it sounds like, you know, one thing that's reassuring is you, as you kind of went through, there are some things that are concerning the elevation from the fall and the vomiting and maybe some of the altered mental status. That would be really bad. But there's also some things that are reassuring, like the mat that absorbed some of the impact. So it's all kind of a scale or risk stratification, it seems like. Is that safe to say? Yes, definitely safe to say. You know, she had she had some concerning symptoms, but I'm just going to assume she didn't have any neurologic deficits on her exam. We always want to make sure that we include a neck exam as well to make sure that um, not only does she not have cervical spine injury, but also that she doesn't have cervical strain injury, which can present very similarly to a mild TBI in symptomatology. So if she was in my emergency department at Stanford, I would have a couple options. I would consider observing her. I would consider getting uh, CT head imaging, but I would also consider getting a abbreviated MRI, which we have through our emergency department. So just a little bit of backstory about the concept of an abbreviated brain MRI for TBI. Our colleagues in Colorado, including a wonderful PEM physician scientist, Joe Grubenhoff, studied whether fast MRI is feasible and as accurate as CT in in identifying traumatic brain injury in clinically stable children. And it turns out from their study, which was uh, published in, I believe, pediatrics, that it turns out that fast MRI is as feasible and accurate as CT imaging. I also published on this topic in JSEP Open this year. JSEP is the open access journal of the American College of Emergency Physicians, the open access sister journal to Annals of Emergency Medicine. And my colleagues and I developed an abbreviated six-minute brain MRI focused on detecting traumatic brain injury, not specifically in children, but in children and adults. We examined its feasibility as well as safety at the Stanford PZD. And the publication in JSEP Open does show the exact sequences of the MRI protocol for reproducibility in other hospitals. So in case anyone's interested in bringing an abbreviated brain MRI for TBI to their home institution, the sequence was crafted by um, Dr. Max Wintermark, who's the chief of neuroradiology at Stanford. So in the grand scheme of things with this patient, I could go for the abbreviated brain MRI, obtain a CT head. Pros and cons there would be that CT delivers a dose of radiation, which might be irrelevant in the grand scheme of things. You know, truly, if this is this child's only head CT, right, ever in her life. But if this instead was the eight-year-old BMX biker who I would frequently see in San Diego who's had so many head injuries that he's already had six head CTs, I might say, you know what, um, I do want to get imaging on you, but I'm going to choose strategically the abbreviated brain MRI instead. Or I might choose to observe the patient. And that is what would really lead me into a discussion with the family for some shared decision-making. Now, of course, there are other factors always involved, like, you know, the patient's past medical history. Do they have a bleeding disorder? Are they worsening in my reassessments in the emergency room? But from, from our description of this patient, she sounds like somebody who really, truly does fit in the neuroimage or observe category. And that's where um, patient and parental preference 
really come into play. But let's take another example. So say say this this was a, a younger child who was injured under the care of grandma. Say the parents are on a transcontinental vacation and the child's going to be going home with grandma, which is a two-hour drive away from the emergency room, and the parents are not going to return for a few days. Grandma has her own medical problem she has to deal with. It might not be most ideal for that caregiver to have to closely monitor this patient because any patient who is observed has to be monitored much more closely than those who had imaging in the first place. So given that this patient has has come in with her mom, fits into the observed versus CT category or observed versus neuroimaging category, I would say for her, let's talk about it. Let's talk about the pros and cons here. And in all honesty, when I do, when I do open up this conversation and I, I just even maybe get the few words out that CT, you know, does exposure child to radiation and there is a very, very small but real risk of consequences from that radiation exposure. Most parents right then and they're saying, no, thank you. I'd rather just observe my child in the emergency room for a few hours or for however long it takes. So it's it's been a, a shift. Um, I would say 10 years ago, everyone came in looking for neuroimaging, but now as we know more, and we're having more of these open discussions, which is also a wonderful trend in medicine, I find that um, the vast majority of caregivers prefer not to obtain CT imaging when, when you discuss observation versus CT with them. And as a follow-up to your the protocol that you've and colleagues have, have developed, this abbreviated MRI, is that the same thing as a fast MRI? Does that require any certain unique infrastructure? Or if a community hospital has an MRI machine, can they be doing this imaging? Yes, they should be able to do that imaging. Now, um, we call it the quick MRI at Stanford mm. because we already have a fast MRI, which is for evaluating VP shunts. So the protocols, the actual sequencing um, that the neuroradiologists will, will plan and program are different depending on what you're looking for. Um, and so that's why I use the more general term abbreviated, because it, each institution is going to call it, you know, whatever they like to call it. And I think like the classic teaching that I've always heard is CT is better at finding like skull fractures and bleeds than MRI. And so I'm assuming these sequences try to address that. Yes, they do. So not necessarily um, for not necessarily for skull fractures. Um, skull fractures are still better diagnosed by CT. However, this is taken with the grain of salt that if there is a simple non-displaced skull fracture, would that really change the management of that patient? MRI should be able to pick out displaced skull fractures, especially since displaced skull fractures also have some, usually have some degree of contusion beneath them or some association with bleeding. But MRI and CT are both very good at identifying traumatic intracranial hemorrhage. So I have a two-part question. So um, I'm I'm wondering in your the rest of your workup on this patient, are there any other specific tests, whether it's specific neuro neuro tests that you would do in terms of like of a generalized neuro exam, like are there specific maneuvers you do? Then are there other tests like blood tests or serum markers that you would do routinely in a patient in this workup? So let's say um, let's just say that we we chose not to get neuroimaging and we decided to observe her. What would I do for this patient? If she seemed well hydrated, then I, I would not put in an IV. I would not fluid resuscitate her. I would not um, take that opportunity to obtain any blood work. Now, many children, though, especially competitive athletes, may be presenting with concussion and some degree of dehydration. And in those cases, you might want to support their symptoms and their recovery by giving them some fluids. But in this case, um, in this case, our patient was not uh, in need of that and was doing well. I, I suspect you're, you're leading towards a question of what diagnostic adjuncts might I use um, biomarker-wise? And this is a really good question. This is a question that really depends, though, on um, what my capabilities are as a clinician and where I'm practicing. So if I'm in the Stanford Pediatric Emergency Department, I might be able to try to assess ocular motor function in this patient, but I wouldn't be able to assess it as objectively and as precisely as if this patient was in the Stanford Concussion Clinic, because we use um, augmented reality goggles to actually measure smooth pursuit 
eye tracking and other ocular motor metrics to diagnose concussion there, well, to, as an adjunct to di diagnose concussion there. And I realized that um, those tests um, and the tests that I'll talk about more uh, as we go on might be more available to a specialty concussion clinic rather than the general pediatrician or general emergency medicine physician. But tests that can be valuable that are free for all, freely available online for all, would be a post-concussive symptom scale. And um, a post-concussive symptom scale is anywhere from a zero to one or zero to seven Likert type scale that has a variety of different symptoms listed as symptom items. And so let's take, for example, let's just, let's just envision a scale just so that everyone has an idea of what I'm talking about with five or with say, let's say three symptoms for simplicity's sake, headache, dizziness, and poor concentration. The patient would be given the scale and they would check on a scale of one to six where their symptoms are. If they're, or zero, let's say zero to six. The symptoms are not there for headache, they'd mark zero. For dizziness, they'd mark maybe seven if they're feeling like it's the most extreme it could be. And I'm already forgetting what my, oh, poor concentration. Maybe they mark a three. And so what I would do is um, I would add up that number to give them a total number and then have an idea of where they are. And depending on what scale we're using, because there's many of them out there, I would have an idea if their ultimate score fell into the realm of something that was considered possibly normal. Because, you know, maybe on a good day we have poor concentration and that doesn't mean that we have a concussion. Or if it really falls into the realm of, yes, this is most likely a concussion, a mild traumatic brain injury. So um, scales that I really like to use include the health behavior inventory and the post-concussion symptom inventory. Um, also the ACE acute concussion evaluation through the CDC, which is free. Uh, most of these are free, actually. So I would just say pick one that you like, go through it. It's wonderful because it includes a variety of symptoms relevant to concussion, not just the three that I talked about. Many of them are 20 plus symptom items. And then you have a score at the end. And then you have also a blank sheet you could send the patient home with to track their own symptoms so that when they do follow up with their pediatrician or, or return for follow-up, um, if it's with you again, you have an idea of how their symptoms are either improving or getting worse or developing over time. And that's an important metric to track, not only to advise the patient and how they're doing, but also to demonstrate to the patient that they are on the road to recovery, which I think is, is important when parents are concerned that their child has a brain injury. And is this something you would get while you're in the emergency department as a baseline? Yes, I would. I would. And I realize not everyone in the emergency room does that. But I think we are approaching more accepted integration in post-concussion symptom scale evaluations in the emergency department. Hi, I'm Dr. Heather Forkey. I often hear that people are uncomfortable doing trauma-informed care because they think it'll take too much time. But we do all sorts of things that could take a lot longer. We talk about gastroenteritis by using the BRAT diet, and that doesn't take any time at all. Similarly, if you want to help families to respond after a child has experienced trauma, the first three things you can do is the three R's, relaxation, return to routine, and regulate. If you want to learn more about how to do that, come join me for the Cribsiders episode on trauma-informed care. So I, when I was a resident, I did a rotation with a sports medicine doctor and um, he had um, this thing called, I think it's called an impact test. Yes. And there were a lot of school age kids who they would do this test ahead of time, like as part of like just regular before they do their school activities. And then, then he would have those results. And then if he was falling up for concussion, he would then also use, have them do this test at every appointment is. How does that fit into all this type of these, these tests that we're talking about? So that is a test of neurocognitive function. Well, predominantly, there's also a wonderful symptom scale associated with impact testing that, that I've used in the past as well. This is an important question. And why I want to say this, I want to digress for a second and just say that how a patient exhibits a mild traumatic brain injury depends on many things. It depends on their pre-morbid factors, like their past medical history or um, psychiatric histories. 
or their propensity for mild traumatic brain injury. It depends on the injury itself, exactly how it happened. Did this result in a complicated mild traumatic brain injury? And it matters how that patient manifests their symptoms. So it's, it's complicated. And I want to say every mild traumatic brain injury is like a, a snowflake and just akin to that person. It's their, um, you know, you really have to look at the person as a whole. But importantly, most children recover from mild traumatic brain injury in a month. Okay, so this is just to kind of give a larger background. Whatever the child is presenting with, the most likely scenario is that that child will, will have symptom resolution and impairment resolution in about a month's time. So when you see enough mild traumatic brain injuries, you'll notice that some patients present as we traditionally expect. And that really speaks to what you're asking about neurocognitive testing. Maybe they have amnesia to the event um, or other common symptoms like headache and vomit. But you will also come to see patients who present with predominant signs of mood disruption or significant vestibular symptoms like dizziness or feeling that they're on a boat. Others may have trouble focusing their vision or feel disoriented. But my point is, is that in this heterogeneity of presentations, using traditional tests that just focused on neurocognitive assessments are going to miss some of these other presentations. So in a recent study published in neurosurgery, I want to just a few months ago in 2020, um, my colleagues and I from across the country examined this phenomenon of heterogeneity in concussion presentation. And we grouped these clinical profiles into concussion subtypes. Another word for subtypes could be phenotypes or domains of concussion. And, and this is kind of a new trend in the literature surrounding mild traumatic brain injury right now. What we determined was that there were five subtypes or domains of concussion that we commonly see. As you said, Chris, cognitive impairment. And that's what we'll catch on impact testing where they use a computerized um, system to measure your reaction time and assess memory. Uh, and it's, it's wonderful, but it is um, software that you have to pay for and that not every clinician has, right? Um, additionally, you have to think about things like, well, what was this child's baseline measurements? So a lot of things to take into consideration with that. So cognitive impairment was one of the subtypes, vestibular impairments ocular motor impairment, headache and migraine predominant symptoms, and anxiety or mood disruption, which I feel like often is just kind of left on the wayside when this is a very important and common presentation of mild traumatic brain injury, not of the distress of the child being seen by a doctor, but it is an actual pathophysiologic presentation of injury that really deserves some attention. And then associated conditions, as I mentioned early with these um, five subtypes would be cervical strain. So always looking at the overlap between cervical strain and some of these concussion symptoms, as well as an associated condition of sleep disturbance. So I think our approach um, in assessment should really look at these five subtypes of concussion and how we can tailor our questions to make sure we are covering all the symptomatology and impairment that, that could be represented there. For example, for vestibular, what I would do in the emergency department or in our concussion clinic would be a vestibular ocular motor screen in which I determine if symptoms of dizziness and related um, disorientation, nausea, et cetera, are elicited by the patient moving their, their head on their neck in a certain way. Recent research has come out to suggest the feasibility of doing a test like this in the emergency department, but again, I don't think we're quite there with integration in every single setting to use these types of assessments right now. I think the easiest assessment that any clinician could use is really the post-concussion symptom scale that would be most meaningful. Awesome. Well, so I have a question. You have all of these different types of phenotypes that you can have. Are there any kinds of acute interventions or treatments you can do for kids just knowing this? Yes, definitely. Uh, so say the patient has an ocular motor impairment. Say that our original patient, the cheerleader who fell, um, was seen at our concussion clinic and she had her eye tracking measured and it turns out that she did have some impairment. Well, sure enough, she can engage into ocular motor rehabilitation, which encompasses a series of eye exercises really to essentially um, team her eyes a little bit better and, and reestablish that dynamic visual synchronization between her, her eyes and her brain to help her get better faster. So you can imagine if this patient, if our cheerleader um, was not really processing 
her the her visual input and then went grocery shopping. She would be walking down the aisle feeling completely overwhelmed from being in this uh, very visual, colorful, busy environment. And she might even develop signs or symptoms of anxiety surrounding that. And she will not know why, right? And so this is how the symptomatology of mild traumatic brain injury can build on itself and become more complicated as the patient goes on through recovery, but not yet to complete recovery. Um, similarly, for vestibular impairment, you can go through um, vestibular rehabilitation. If the patient has anxiety and mood disruption, maybe they're even coming in with a premorbid history related to that, they could very well benefit from seeing a neuropsychologist. And then finally, headache and migraine. Certainly, we could use things like um, acetaminophen or ibuprofen as needed or suggesting sunglasses if, if um, bright light is a trigger. And then in relationship to sleep, which was an associated condition, sleep hygiene is critical for these patients. They want to sleep or they want to sleep at different times of the day. And, and then they wake up at night and can't go back to sleep. So supporting them by making sure they have bright light in the, in the daytime, that they stay on a set bedtime schedule maybe even if they need it, melatonin as needed, um, that they're in a quiet environment, could really support this patient's recovery. Mild traumatic brain injury is going to disrupt someone's sleep, and the effects of sleep disruption are going to compound the mild traumatic brain injury symptoms. So with the different other, with the, these different phenotypes of symptoms too, um, a lot of the interventions you're saying are like either rehab or sort of behavioral therapy, like are there other places for pharma, uh, pharmacologic interventions? So with a more of a mood disorder phenotype, do people get started on SSRIs with, you know, if they're having concentration issues, do they get started on ADHD medications? Like, it, are there places for those types of interventions in these patients? In the acute phase, no. If this was a patient who had persistent post-concussive symptoms lasting beyond a month, so about 30% of children will have symptoms that persist beyond a month to three months. And especially if this is the child who had a premorbid history, they might benefit from those added medications. But that's not something I would go to in the acute or subacute setting. I, I did want to add one more thing. There was a very nice study that came out recently and myself um, being a yoga practitioner, I really liked it. Um, it looked at using deep breathing and calming techniques in children with concussion. And it found that those who use these techniques actually had symptom resolution about a day earlier than the others. And, you know, things like that, I think reassuring the family, counseling them, which is also part of treatment, right? Making sure they understand what to expect, making sure their symptoms are validated, making sure they have the resources to get on the road to recovery are just as important as saying, take a Tylenol when you have a headache. What are you telling parents to tell teachers or coaches about kind of when they can get back to their normal activities? So the 2018 CDC guidelines made a strong suggestion that children should reintegrate into their cognitive and physical therapies after just two to three days of rest. And this is very different from what previous consensus-based recommendations had said. It was usually a graded return to play that had, you know, six different stages and you dropped off. Now the recommendation um, from several, actually many wonderful studies looking at how reintegrating into activity can improve symptoms and mood and how reintegrating into aerobic exercise can also um, potentially decrease symptom duration um, have suggested that two to three days of rest should be enough. Of course, every person's to be taken as an individual but that two to three days is a number that we should all shoot for in getting that child back into their usual activities. You know, in the acute setting, wherever we are, be it in the pediatric emergency department, being, be it in the pediatrician's office, any, any treatment involves strategizing a plan for recovery. And that includes follow-up planning with the patient's clinician or subspecialty referrals as needed, but it also includes planning for what to do in the interim. So re-engaging into activity, using non-narcotic pain relievers for headache, seeking out quieter places if you're particularly sensitive to noise, prioritizing sleep, and discussing what to expect. And when I discuss what to expect, I say that um, everyone's different. I say that most children will get better within a month and that you will see a change in your child 
as the week or two goes on. New symptoms will pop up. You'll notice more um, emotional lability. You'll notice problems concentrating at school just because you've had time then to see those things show up. Um, in the first day or two when the child's not at school, you might not even realize that there's a problem with concentration. So I like to provide prognostic counseling because I think that's one of the key ways to support our patients. So when you're talking about like the activities and you were talking about aerobic activity, encouraging aerobic activity, is there a difference between the other types of activities? So when you're talking about going back to school, whether it's reading versus math, or now that so many people are doing uh, tele, um, uh, tele, tele school, you know, like yeah, Zoom learning, uh, looking at screens. I know we've traditionally talked about like not doing video games or, you know, these types of things or no TV time or decreasing TV time. Are recommendations different on these different types of activities? It's just, simpt it's really activity as tolerated. Uh, so some children who do have ocular motor impairment or have migraine type headache will find that their eyes are strained or their symptoms are worsened when they're focusing on a screen um, or trying to read a book even, but others will not. So that's why it's important to take each child individually and, and let them try to re-engage. Really, if the exacerbation is significant, then certainly they should stop doing that, give themselves a day or two rest and think about re-engaging. But um, they could also try to shorten the time that they're doing whatever they're doing. So if, they're, if they have homework that they are re-engaging in, maybe spend 20 minutes on it and then take a break and then another 20 minutes. Um, you know, I was a child with concussion myself. And I remember in high school being out of school for a week after my concussion. And the weight of knowing all my homework was building up, um, gosh, it was probably, you know, just as stressful as having the injury itself. So in, in being able to prognosticate with families, we can also direct them um, to let their teachers know what's going on and make sure that the pediatrician and school have communication to understand if this child is someone who may need an individualized learning plan, an ILP, because they need more time for their homework or they need a reduced workload so that they don't feel that burden of, um, oh my gosh, I have to do this right now and I have to, I have to push myself through exacerbating my symptoms. When you're talking about the IEP and, and the resources setting up kids for success after a concussion, are there major health disparities, racial disparities, ethnic disparities that exist in diagnosis, management, recovery of mild traumatic brain injuries? This is an important discussion. Thank you for bringing it up. First and foremost, I'd like to discuss maybe sex-based disparities in care and in the diagnosis of mild TBI, and then move into race, ethnicity, and socioeconomic status. I'm a board member at Pink Concussions, which is a nonprofit organization that focuses on pre-injury education and post-injury medical care for women and girls with brain injury, including concussion, from sport, violence, accidents, or even military service. And the mission of this organization is to drive change and innovation to help develop and implement sex-specific gender responsive strategies for the identification, management, and support of women and girls with brain injury. Historically, most of what we know about mild TBI was focused on males who sustained sports-related head injuries. That's what the scope of literature was when this entity first began building traction. However, as the scientific research surrounding mild traumatic brain injury has grown exponentially, especially in the last 10 years, we have more information on female brain injury in specific. And what current studies suggest is that females may manifest mild traumatic brain injury differently from males. Just, um, just this year, 2020 in JAMA, a large study by Giza and Joya on 600 children reported that females took longer to recover from mild traumatic brain injury than males. So, so this is um, specifically to um, female and male children. In regards to race, ethnicity, and socioeconomic status, more work definitely needs to be done in this realm to understand important differences that can support better outcomes. But I'd like to highlight a few great studies. Work by Zonfrio and Rivara, published in 2014 in the Journal of Neurotrauma, reported that patients who were socioeconomically disadvantaged were more likely to have poor outcomes in relation to quality of life at three months and 12 months following injury. And this was an excellent study that was included in the 2018 CDC guidelines. More recently, Lyons and Mannix um, in Frontiers of Neurology just last year 
performed a retrospective analysis of an injury surveillance data set and found that Black children were 30% less likely than their non-Hispanic white counterparts to be diagnosed with a sports-related concussion when presenting with head injury. So such findings, of course, are um, limited by retrospective evaluation, but they raise important questions about the potential for racial bias in the evaluation and diagnosis of head injury in athletes and in, and in everyone, and certainly warrants further research ASAP. And um, I'm happy to be doing some research in that field right now. Um, but similar statistics were also reported by Wallace and Huang in the Journal of Emergency Medicine, I think this year, 2020. There was a higher proportion of white adolescent patients diagnosed with concussion compared to black patients presenting mm -hmm. with injury. And there were differences in um, their mechanism of injury and in their socioeconomic status when compared. That team went on to further report um, that they surveyed more than 500 adolescent athletes and reported race-based differences in their own patient report of concussion. So ultimately, what, what is the take-home message from this, this growing body of important evidence? Let's say, ultimately, it is a clinician's responsibility to assess the patient as an individual. And just as we take into account how a patient's past medical history may be pertinent to their concussion recovery, it's our, also our responsibility to ask questions about our patient's home and social environment, about their school supports, about their access to follow-up medical care, and assess for any other stressors that might affect recovery. This is something, sometimes something that physicians don't do to ask these social questions. This may be that this child who's in front of me in the emergency room sleeps with four other family members in their room and faces challenges in sleep hygiene. If I don't ask, I won't know that and I won't be able to support them or make suggestions. You know, this may be that the child does not have a pediatrician to follow up with. If we don't ask, who will ask, right? So beyond this, it's our responsibility to ensure that our families understand their diagnosis and prognosis as well as their plan of recovery. And being a physician means that we are also educators. Taking the time to assess for understanding is our responsibility, and we may be the only person who does, right? So if we don't do this, who will do this? And um, that's how I approach my patients in the emergency room. They're individuals. They are my beautiful snowflakes that I want to find out everything about and be in the present moment with, um, because ultimately that interaction is really why we became doctors, right? So as a pediatrician, you know, I, I, I feel like I really, and a primary care doctor, I feel like I, I probably do know these patients the best and I have a better idea of um, their social history and what, what's going on, what's, what's going on with like the parent, the grandparent situations. So I feel from, from that standpoint, I might have a really good handle on what's going on with the patient. And a lot of times I do get that follow-up patient from the EDU who had the diagnosis of, of TBI. When should I feel like I need to re refer them to a specialist, a concussion um, clinic or an expert, or should I just be able to manage that? You know, this is, a, this is a question that's really dependent on the clinician who's providing care. Some pediatricians or general practitioners will feel very comfortable managing mild traumatic brain injury. They might have a specific interest in it and so know about the, the screening tests I've talked about that are, that are generally just used in concussion uh, clinics. But I would say if this is a patient who is presenting after acute head injury and you feel that they have a significant symptom burden or they have any other warning signs, then they certainly deserve further evaluation. In, in understanding what we've just talked about regarding concussion subtype assessment, if you feel that there's any symptoms that are suggestive of potential impairment in the vestibular or ocular motor system, or um, if you think this is a patient who, from their pre-morbid uh, pre history or their current symptoms, are at risk for worsening anxiety and mood disruption, I would certainly recommend referring them to some sort of physical therapist who who specializes in vestibular and ocular motor rehabilitation, or to a neuropsychologist, or to a concussion specialist. You know, every institution is different. Um, at Stanford, uh, neurosurgery, as well as neurology, as well as sports medicine, have their own pediatric concussion clinics. Um, when I was at St. Louis Children's Hospital before coming to Stanford, it was neurosurgery who oversaw the concussion clinic. 
So it just depends on um, what resources you have in your clinical environment and, and being able to identify when you feel that you are not um, able for lack of, of your own knowledge or resources in providing the best care to that patient. So that's when the time to refer is key. Certainly any patient who has symptoms that are persisting beyond one month that, are, that is interfering with them re-engaging in their usual activities would benefit from a deeper eval to understand what's going on. And is that, I guess, the major thing that concussion clinics can offer is deeper evaluation and more specific referral to rehabilitative therapy or neuropsychology or vestibulo-ocular therapy? Yes, they'll have more objective type testing that will include likely balance assessments, vestibulo-ocular motor assessments. They might even have an in-house neuropsychologist. Again, it depends on what that concussion clinic Got it. Um, has. At Stanford Pediatrics, we have um, a lot of supportive devices in, in objectively measuring concussion. We have specifically trained uh, rehabilitation therapists. We have a, a neuropsychologist we go to. So in that sense, I feel that, that we are able to provide great care to our patients. And as we learn more about mild TBI, we might find that we need to expand further. Maybe we need to um, test the hearing in, in more of our patients because there certainly is, you know, a small subset of patients who present with problems with their hearing, actually. So I think that the nice thing about concussion clinics is that they are more likely to be on top of innovative diagnostic strategies and therapeutic treatments. This is great, especially with all the race and health disparities. And I think it's an important part of this uh, conversation. Can we ask a couple quick hit questions, like rapid fire? Like myths that we, we've heard. Yeah. So yes. maybe some Dean Bunting. Um, I want to start because this is one that I feel like I've heard and I never understood. If I have a bad head injury, uh, don't let the kid fall asleep. If the kid has a bad in- head injury, don't let him fall asleep. Where does that come from? Is that something we need to do? That's if we don't know what type of head injury it is. Is it a mild, moderate, or severe traumatic brain injury? Only a doctor can answer that question. So take them to the emergency room. God, we didn't even talk. About, we have to do a whole new episode on moderate uh, <laughs> uh, TBI. So my next question is about uh, sort of a double point. So there, we do. I've heard that you know it's really worrisome when you have multiple concussions. So if a patient is like still recovering from a concussion, that having a recurrent concussion can be obviously a, a major issue. Um, I've also heard that there are some like pretty famous people who actually have like multiple concussions and those are the symptoms that I have. So I've heard that Lou Gehrig didn't actually have ALS, but actually had a concussive type symptom. And also Muhammad Ali also has his, his symptoms aren't are Parkinson like, but are actually from concussions. Is this, have you heard of any of these myths? My goodness. No, I've never heard of either one of those things, but I'm certainly going to sit with Google after this (laughs) and have a look at what's out there. Um, You know, when you have a mild traumatic brain injury, you are at a lower threshold for re-injury. And this is why we don't want children going back out and engaging in risky play or contact sports because their threshold for re-injury is lower and they could potentially get themselves into a more serious injury. They have um, a slower reaction time. And if they're out on the field or trying to jump from one couch to the other, whatever they're doing, um, there's more of a chance that they'll be injured again. So at what point do you feel they're safe to then? Because obviously a lot of them may be, they're, they're athletes. They want to get back out there. And um, what risk burden do you, at what point do you say, well, if this what you really want to do and you accept this risk, how, how do you navigate that with a parent or, or an adolescent? So let's take the classic contact sport example. So let's take uh, the situation of an adolescent football player who just really wants to get back into the game and he has, he's diagnosed with a maltraumatic brain injury right there in front of you. And he wants to know if he can go back to his game, um, contact football in one week from now. What you're going to say is, no, I'm sorry, this is not the safest thing for you. I cannot um, advocate for you doing that. And the reason being is that it will take at least, at least a couple of days to a month for most children to have concussion symptoms resolve. The vast majority of children, 70%, 
will have recovered from a mild traumatic brain injury at a month's time, but we don't know who that person is in looking at them sitting in front of you on the day that they've got injured. So that's where monitoring their symptoms with a post-concussion symptom scale is helpful. That's where um, symptoms that are severe and persisting require subspecialty follow-up to determine if they really do have impairments um, that are going hand-in-hand -hand with those symptoms that make reintegration into contact sports dangerous. So I tell my contact sports players that they should assume that they're going to be out of contact play for at least two weeks to a month. And, um, you know, if, if they choose to follow my advice, then wonderful. If they don't, then they're risking re-injury. Building off that, have you ever heard of like a second hit phenomenon, like a fatal second concussion? I've certainly heard of that phenomenon. There's been uh, several case reports in the literature about this concept. However, all of those case reports, um, are flawed to some degree in that we don't truly know what was going on with that child beforehand. Perhaps there wasn't imaging beforehand. Maybe that child had a complicated mild traumatic brain injury and actually had a decent size subdural. Maybe they had an underlying, uh, uh, an underlying issue uh, that also predisposed them to a more severe injury. It's, it's just unclear for those few case reports that are out there uh, what secondary impact syndrome is and if it truly exists. What we do know, though, from the literature is that, yes, you are at a heightened risk for re-injury. And, you know, that re-injury could be a more severe injury. And maybe still building on that, not so much debunking a myth, but um, are there long-term consequences to either really severe mild TBIs or long-term consequences of multiple repeated concussions? Yes, a chronic traumatic encephalopathy is a real entity. We don't know the magic number um, for how many head injuries a person must sustain in order to go on to exhibit CTE. Um, so this is a difficult conversation to have with parents whose child loves their contact sport or loves heading the ball in soccer. We just don't know what's safe. And so we all have to use our best judgment. I certainly, you know, I was an athlete in high school. I loved playing basketball. It gave me, you know, so many benefits, so many health benefits, so many social benefits. And those are just as important as, just as important in weighing risk and benefit to a person. But when the risk is exceeding a benefit and when that risk is unnecessary, then, then someone must step in for that child and say, you know, enough is enough. This child has had eight head injuries from BMX biking, this does not seem to be the sport for them. This was a comprehensive review of mild traumatic brain injury, and I feel much more empowered when I see a patient in the clinic or in the emergency department who's coming in with a concussion mild traumatic brain injury. Starting to, to wrap up, are there key take-home points that you think are really important that uh, we want to make sure that our learners leave with after this episode? Yes. Um, ensure that you're asking the right questions to make the right diagnosis of mild traumatic brain injury. Consider the five subtypes of concussion. Consider asking about sleep disruption and asking about cervical strain. Um, and remember that each concussion presents individually. If you choose not to obtain neuroimaging in the acute setting, ensure that you're sending the patient home with a reliable care provider who lives relatively close to a hospital and who understands clearly what warning signs to look out for and how to monitor that child. And then finally, the most important um, take-home message is that we must counsel our families about mild traumatic brain injury and what to expect and what recovery looks like. Um, and to be positive, to reassure them that most children will recover within a month um, and that we need to track that with appropriate follow-up. Excellent. I am so excited about this episode. I think this was, this was great. Yeah, um, this thank was you. Amazing. Um, thank you so, so much for joining us. Uh, it was a real pleasure to have you. Um, and We'll have you back for moderate traumatic brain injury All right. uh, sometimes uh, <laughs> next year. Severe. You know what? If you if you decide in the future you want to talk about how to manage severe traumatic brain injury in a kid, I'm your gal. 
Excellent. So, we'll have you on. Sometime down I, the line. Melatonin, right? Is that any <laughs> that in? <laughs> return to play. It was um, a pleasure awesome. to meet you all. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. This has been another episode of The Cribsiders. It's for the kids. Get show notes at thecribsiders.com slash podcast and sign up for our mailing list called Knowledge Food Formula Feeds to get our weekly show notes in your inbox. We are committed to providing you with high value practice changing knowledge. And to do that, we need your feedback. So please subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts or send us an email, thecribsiders at gmail.com. A special thanks to our wonderful producer tonight for this episode, Dr. Jessica Kelly. Tonight, I've been Justin Lee Burke. I've been Jess Kelly. And this has been Chris the Human Chew. Thank you and good night. Hey, you've already listened to the entire episode. Now claim CME credit. Continuing education credit is provided by VCU Healthcare Continuing Education. VCU is accredited to provide continuing education to the entire healthcare team. Check it out at cribsiders.vcuhealth.org for more information and to claim your credit after listening to this episode.